All right, tonight we're going to be in Psalm 41. So make your way there, please. I'm going to read the entire psalm, uh, 13 verses, and then we will pray and uh, jump into it. And if you'll notice, I imagine all the translations are this way. This is the last psalm of book one, five books of the psalms. All of them conclude with some sort of doxology. So you can see that in verse 13, rather, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen kind of like all the books except Psalms 150 where it's a double hallelujah. Uh, so it's more like a doxology to get to the end of this particular section of Psalms. So that's why it's a little bit unique. But anyway, first one says, For the choir director, Psalm of David, that's literally in the original text. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth and do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish, they say. And when he comes to see me, he speaks lies or falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. And so when he goes outside, he tells everyone, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing has been poured out upon him. Then he lies down and he will never rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Uh, thank you for those that you burdened with a desire to come and, and worship you, Father. Thank you for the word as we walk through the book of Romans. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to do your work in our hearts and make us more like your son through your word and your spirit. Make it effective within us, not for the sake of knowing things, but rather for the sake of humbling our life and obeying what we find in your word. Thank you for tonight. Uh, thank you for uh, just the spirit resting upon David as he often picked up the pen to write many of these psalms. Uh, Father, there's always something for us uh, to encourage us, to exhort us, to correct us, to train us, to teach us. There's always something. And so, Father, I pray that your Spirit would help us as we look at your Word. I pray that your Spirit would give my words sense and make them faithful to who you are and what you are saying to your people. 
And then make all of us here with a thankful heart that we have the Word of God, a humble heart knowing that your Word is perfect in every way and the only response that's adequate to the Word of God is repentance and belief. And so help us to respond in such a way and bear fruit in our lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you notice going through there, this is, this is a difficult psalm. It's difficult really in what you do with this. There's a whole lot going on here. There's a lament uh, about his enemies that have come against him. There's prayer requests in here. There's a praise at the end. And so it's very difficult to find a flow throughout this psalm. It's not like we just walk through, you know, 37, 38, 39, 40, those sort of psalms. This one, this one requires quite a bit of help, at least it did for me. Some of the better commentators see this as a liturgy, meaning, okay, you'll notice verse 4, you'll find the problem here. David writes, As for me, I said to the Lord, be gracious to me and heal my soul. So we understand it's some form of sickness, okay? And so being a liturgy, more than likely, if they're right, and I couldn't find any reason they wouldn't be, but more than likely he's gone to the temple He's requested of the priest that he pray for him, that he might be healed. And what the priest does before they go through the service, liturgical service, is he quotes to him what comes across to us as a principle that needs to be obeyed within his life and the promises that flow out of those principles. Okay, It's very similar to our Lord's teaching of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. In other words... No one would go to the temple to request to have physical healing that had disregard for the poor because that would run antagonistic to the Word of God. And so the, the priest, more than likely, would say verses 1 through 3, Blessed is he who considers the helpless. And if you'll notice, the Lord will, the Lord will, verse 2, verse 3, the Lord will. And so it, it comes across as, this is what the man, or this is what God does for the man who considers carefully the helpless or the poor. Now it's interesting that he translates the word helpless because more often than not, that particular word is translated poor. So we do understand what he's talking about. But the unique word in verse one actually comes from the word consider, and it's not what we would think it to be. It's not simply I see a poor person, so I'm going to get out my wallet you know, and give them 20 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever we do, or we'll take my coat off and give it to the homeless man because I'm walking home and, you know, he's going to spend the night on the street. That's, that's not what the word consider means. It could also be translated understands. It's often translated understands. Acts wisely or prospers. In other words, he prospers the poor. But I think the emphasis is on he's, he's considerate, considered, he understands the situation and the circumstances, and he acts in his interest. In other words, this is not something he took care of in five minutes. This is a man who's considered the circumstances of this helpless person, and he has acted in such a way as to benefit him or to prosper him. See, it's a little bit more. Uh, and it's in that man that we see that the Lord does so much for him, delivers him in the day of trouble, uh, protects him, keeps him alive, sustains him upon his sick bed. In verse 3, you can see why this is probably a liturgy and the priest is saying to this. Verse 3 prepares David to respond in verse 4. 
The Lord will sustain this man who considers the helpless upon his sickbed. And in his illness, you restore him to health. And David responds to the priest, heal my soul. Okay, so that certainly makes sense because that is something that would have happened more or less. Now, as far as breaking the psalm up, you can see what David normally does. He talks about his sin. He talks about his enemies. Verse 4, as for me, I have sinned against you. So David in sickness deals with his sin before God first and foremost. Not naming anything particular, he just understands who he is before God. And so he simply says, forgive me of my sin. But the significant thing is against you. Again, what does David say when he sins against Bathsheba? Against you and you only have I sinned. So when you begin to try to reason or, or work through the psalm and, and figure out the things that we need to see and highlight the most, that's one of those things that you need to understand and highlight the most. All of your sin is against God. You need to see it that way and you need to understand it that way. Because if you understand sin that way, you'll be a lot more serious about the sin in your life. Sin is open rebellion against God. It is no different than a young child looking at mom or dad and saying no. And you know how we respond to that, right? We don't like the open rebellion at all. And so David sees his sin that way, and that's why often he will say, my sin is against you, okay? But then he quickly moves on to his enemies. My enemies speak evil against me. When will, they, when will he die and his name perish? And so really five through nine is where David deals with his enemies. And of course, verse nine should be very familiar to you and we'll get down to that in just a moment. And then he comes back to, oh Lord, be gracious to me. So, you know, I'm trying to give you some way to, to work through this psalm and divide it out for yourself. If you'll notice verse four, oh Lord, be gracious to me. Verse 10, oh Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. You see that? So there is a little bit of balance in between his request of the Lord to be gracious, but in the middle sits the heart of the letter, and it's the enemies that have come against David while he's on his sickbed. And it's interesting that they're visiting him. And you don't know whether it's in David's mind or in reality when they visit him, it's just more or less to save face because he's the king, right? But then they go out in the street and they talk wicked things about the king. And so this is what David understands in his heart that these men are doing against him. And so he's asking the Lord to actually deliver him from them. Okay, And it is interesting, verse 10, there's things here that leave questions in our minds. Oh Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I might repay them. Right. So that's a little bit difficult to walk through and consider. But we do understand his request to the Lord is an action of grace. And that's something else that David repeats. Be gracious to me, verse 4, verse 10, O Lord, be gracious to me. In other words, David understands whatever God does, it will be an act of grace, period. So we got so much to learn from him as he writes this prayer out to the Lord. These are attitudes that we need to have. He's not going before God and going, okay, you owe me or I've pinned you down because I'm this kind of man, then you have to respond in this particular way. David's not like that. My sin is always against you, and whatever you do in my life is always an act of grace. Okay? So let's walk through this, and that's a little bit of an outline. And as I told you, verse 13 is a doxology to end the Psalms. But 
Anyway, he ends this psalm, particular psalm, with praise. And so when they arranged it, this is the one they put last. And I think one of the things that makes it difficult to me is I don't see a connection to Psalm 40, and I don't see a connection to Psalm 42. So this one just kind of sits out here. All right? So there's lots here to think about. Many things I'm not going to solve for you. But let's talk about the idea of considering the helpless. And there's a number of places that I want us to go tonight. You're going to feel like you're in Bible drills. But I want us to help build a doctrine of always being the sort of people that help the helpless. Okay? So go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Keep something in Psalm 41 because we'll, we'll run back uh, eventually. Deuteronomy 15. I'll show you what I want to do with some of these passages, and then I'll turn you guys loose to consider some yourself. But let me read verses 7 through 11. And there's something here that I want you to see that we need to learn in regard to giving to the poor or helping the needy. Okay, verse 7. And again, you've got to realize this is the law. Okay, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and your eyes hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing knowing what will happen the seventh year, right? Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be sin in you. Verse 10, you shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Now verse 11 clearly tells you this is a command. This is not up for discussion. Okay, It's something that God required within the law. Now what is so significant in this particular command? Which passage jumps out to you that teaches you the thing that we need to be most careful about? Not having a base thought in your heart. That is... Certainly in the direction, because you're on the right organ, so to speak. I think he's, the summary of not having a base thought comes in verse 10. And this is what I want us to do as we work through these. You shall generously give, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give. For this thing the Lord your God will bless you. In other words, how do we give? With a generous heart. And that's always the issue when you give. If you have a spouse and there's a need in the church, what do you always do when the request is made from the front of the church? How much you want to give? Always. We always do that. And what happens in your heart? You know, one of you says 100 and the other one's over goes, I was thinking 50. You know, we all do that. We go back and forth. But we're kind of missing the point. 
That's not how giving is done, right? It's more of a praise the Lord. I have opportunity this morning to meet the needs of someone who has a genuine need. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have, but that's never the attitude we tend to have, right? But the Lord says, with that kind of heart, you will be blessed. Now, that's the law, and we really got to be careful at that point. Because who is a man that was exceedingly generous from the heart that by all physical indications was not blessed of God? Somebody said it. Job. You see, you got to be careful. Because we know once you get to the end of Job, he was certainly blessed of God in tremendous ways. But we look at this as if I generously give, the Lord is going to give back to me. In fact, that's become a very twisted theology. What is that called? The seed of faith or something like that theology today. Very twisted up. So you got to be really careful with the law. But the point is, not have anything base in your heart and rather replace that with a heart that is sincere and genuine and generous, excited about the opportunity. And I remember times, and I, I, I remember Abby doing it, and I think all the kids did it at one point or another. They would be little, and need would come up to the church, and they would entirely empty out their piggy bank and go, I want you to give this. And we would respond with, and we would go ahead and do it realizing that they were exemplifying a biblical faith much more than mom and dad. They just had something in there, had no concept of how much it was or what it meant. They just understood it to be a need and they wanted to do what they could. I remember all of our kids doing that. That's a better attitude than what we as parents have. We're going, yeah, okay, let's put all that back and give me a five and I'll... So we need to be careful need to be very careful and respect some of these things. That's not the hard attitude that Scripture is describing here. Of course, you'll know why if you don't already know. So go back to Deuteronomy 10. And I want you to read verses 17 through 19. And you tell me one of the greatest reasons that we should give. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, great, mighty, awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan, the widow, shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So what's one of the greatest reasons that we give? That's true, but we're not to that one yet. Good guess. It's actually right. But what, which one is sticking out? You're on the right track. Yeah. When you do this, you're reflecting the character of God. And isn't that what it's all about? 
I mean, we just carry it on to the gospel, right? We turn from our sins, we put our faith in Christ, we go through this process of sanctification, we're being recreated, Paul writes in Colossians, into the image of God, right? And so as we are sanctified back into the image, we reflect more and more of the character of God. And God's like, this is why I want you to do this. This is why I want you to take care of the helpless and the needy and the poor, because that is who I am. So in other words, you're acting just like your heavenly father. And so that's why you need to reconsider how you take care of the, of the poor and the needy. It's not about you. It has nothing to do with how much money you have or you don't have. You rejoice at the opportunity to reflect the character of your God. And that's very significant. Okay? Go to Deuteronomy 24. Seventeen through twenty-two. Read that and give me another reason that we need to consider the helpless. Why do you give? He actually repeats it twice. Verse 18, verse 22. Do what? Yeah, so he's calling them to remembrance. In other words, when you give, you're remembering what God has done on your behalf. And we'll get to this in just a minute. You know I'm running toward the gospel, right? But we too were helpless and needy. We too could not benefit our own circumstance, what we were talking about this morning. We were enslaved, not in Egypt, but to sin. And God was like, there was no reason for me to reach down and help you in your helpless and needy state. The only reason I did it is because of who I am. Therefore, when you have opportunity to help others, you need to pause and reflect that your God has done the very same thing for you. And you can do that in some of the most simple of ways. You can reflect on what God has done for you in the gospel when you give someone else food, for goodness sake, or money, or clothes, or whatever, you know, the first command was to meet their need, whatever their particular need was. He said, you do it in remembrance, right? In other words, we're about to build in a few more things, but there's so much going on when you give that you don't give thought to. All you're thinking is, well, I said 50, she said 100, let's go with 50. That's our thought. And by the way, that's not the word consider. That's not what he's saying. How blessed is the man who considers. You're not considering. You're forgetting so much. 
that's going on when you have opportunity to help. Go to Proverbs chapter 14. Read verse 31. This is one of the simpler ones. If you want to jump in, why do you consider the helpless? It's pretty simple. To honor the Lord. In fact, that's a good starting point for you to teach your kids why you should always meet the needs of those around you, if at all possible. We do this because it honors the Lord. Now, on the flip side of that, when you don't do that, what does it say you're doing? You dishonor God. Man, I bet that didn't dawn on your mind when you leaned over to your spouse and said how much you want to give. That never crossed your mind, that it dishonors the Lord. Because in effect, it's to hold your hand out to God in need and He being gracious and merciful supplies our need and then refusing to open your hand up to another person in need. It's like you're taking and receiving but unwilling to return. And that's not who we've been called to be. God's like, that's, that dishonors me. Don't you dare do that, right? Do the other thing and honor me. All right, this one is super difficult. Go from the hard, easiest one to the most difficult one. Isaiah chapter 58. Now, I'm sure being in a Southern Baptist church, um, you've heard a sermon on Isaiah 58. It's when he's telling them what a genuine fast is, okay? But you need to consider what's included in the context of genuinely seeking God through worship and through fasting. So let me read. I'll read it rather quickly, but I am going to start in verse 1. Cried loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet, okay? So the prophet was to declare to the house of Israel, the people of God, their sin. Yet they seek me day by day and say they delight to know my ways as a nation that has done what is right or righteousness and has not forsaken the word of their God. They ask me to be just in their decisions. They delight in being near to God. Why have we fasted and you did not respond or you did not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you never notice? And God responds. So in other words, the prophet preaches. They declare that they love being near to God and they love obeying God. And then they go, but God, we got a question. Because we seek you in prayer and we fast and you don't even answer us. So what's the problem? And then God responds. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire. You do what you want to do. You drive hard all your workers... Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose a day for a man to humble himself? 
In other words, you fast and continue to do the things that you want to do unrepentantly. Let me describe for you what a genuine fast and genuine worship looks like. Is it for the bowing of one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Is that all it is? Is it just physical, as Nathan talked about repentance? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? If you do these things, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. So in other words, he's tying our care and consideration for the poor and the helpless with worship. I mean, this has reached an entirely new level in regard to we need to consider the helpless. It's an expression of genuine worship to God. He said, you, you go and you listen to the preacher. You respond with your eloquent words. Oh, how we love to go to the house of God and be near God. Oh, how we love to hear the word of God preached. But Lord, why don't you hear us when we pray? Well, I'll tell you why I don't listen to you. Because you pray and then you live your lives unrepentantly doing whatever you want. Let me tell you what a genuine fast is. It's not doing without food and tearing your clothes and sitting in the dirt. A genuine fast looks like this, turning from your sins and being generous to the poor. And he lists other things there, but you see he's tied it together. He's like, this is worship. You do these things and then when you call out to God, I'll hear you. In other words, he's calling them to a depth of sincerity in their walk with the Lord. And a part of that depth is how we respond to the helpless and how we respond to the poor. He said, that's genuine. That's tough. Consider the helpless. Bring him back to that. Do you consider it as worship? Okay, so the next time y'all find an opportunity, y'all are really going to pour yourself into it, right? You got all this stuff swirling in your mind and I don't want to leave your mind. Oh, I want to honor the Lord. I want it to be an expression of worship, right? And you go through all these things and you realize this is what pleases the Lord. Steve talks about a man that he heard of somewhere in the Northwest. Older guy took his retirement, cashed it out, bought Happy Meals with it day after day until he spent his entire retirement and he gave out Happy Meals to the homeless people and then he lived among them and preached the gospel to them. You and I would look at that pretty funny. But God would receive it as worship that was pleasing in His sight. Yeah? We need to rethink how much we consider the opportunities that we have to help. Whoever it is. Uh, one more. Uh, Ezekiel 22. So keep rolling to the right. Rob, you good there? Getting strangled. 
Ezekiel 22, 29. Oh, yeah, i got to help you with this one, too. I was going to let you just do this one on your own, but I can't. Um, so, 22.1. Let's catch the context. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all her abominations. Right? So he's called Ezekiel to the task to preach against the church of all that she's doing wrong. Now, let's work through the list. Look at verse 4. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed, and you defiled, your, and you defiled by your idols which you have made. So he's preaching against Israel. And what's problem number one? Idolatry. You've built your own idols. Okay? And we're thinking, that's really bad. Yeah, that's really bad, right? Ten Commandments, like starting off, that's really a bad thing. Okay? But he continues to preach against them. So turn the page. Look at verse 11. One has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife, and another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. What's... Not necessarily second. I, I skipped a few. But what's the second heavy thing that he's preaching against? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. And we're thinking, man, that's heavy. You better believe that's heavy. So as he rises up to preach against their sins, number one, idolatry. Number two, sexual immorality. Okay. Now look with me at, at verse 18 so we can catch this. Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me, all of them. So he gives us a heading. He's about to preach against everybody and all that they're doing. Look at verse 25. There is a conspiracy against her prophets in her midst like a roaring lion tearing prey. Look at verse 26. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. Verse 27. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey 28, he comes back to the prophets. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. So let me do heavy thing number three. They're preaching lies. They're not preaching truth. Heavy thing. So we've got idolatry, sexual immorality, and false prophets. And you're like, that's a heavy list. Well, look at verse 29. The people, okay, we've worked our way through everybody. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery. They have wronged the poor and the needy, and they've oppressed the sojourner without justice. And here comes judgment. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall, stand in the gap before me for the land, so that I would not destroy it, but I have not found one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their own heads, declares the Lord. What were the people doing? They were not considering the poor or the helpless. And you're like, that belongs on that list? That belongs on that list. Idolatry, sexual immorality, false preachers preaching lies and not considering the needy. And God says, I just looked for somebody to stand in that gap, and I didn't find anybody, so I'm going to pour out my wrath. So now we've gone from worship to judgment. So we really need to consider. We really need to consider these things and what we or how we respond to these things. Okay? 
Now, let's leave the Old Testament. If you're jotting notes, I know pages, jot down Amos 4.1. So in this body, let's just think about us for just a second. You don't have to turn there, but who's likely to be more compassionate toward the helpless? Man or a woman? Woman. Always. The woman is always the compassionate one. Amos is angry because rather than the women having compassion for the poor, you know what they're doing? They're drinking wine. They're getting drunk. And they're mocking the poor. So by the time you get to Amos, it's a terrible situation. He said, not only did I look among you for somebody to have compassion on the needy and the poor, when I looked at the women, I was disgusted because they ridiculed them while they got drunk. Okay, so it's a horrible downturn into sin. All right. Nonetheless, we come into the New Testament. Let's, let's go to Matthew first. And we're going to see how spirit-filled people respond. Now you understand what the Beatitudes are. If you mess up the Beatitudes, you've, you've messed up everything. These are not, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I need to be poor in spirit in order that I might earn the kingdom of heaven. Don't do that. The Beatitudes are describing those individuals who have turned from their sin and put their faith in God. This is descriptive of who they are. Okay? So you'll notice uh, verse 3, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There it is. It's the Old Testament teaching that we find in the law. Consider the helpless. In other words, the Lord responds with that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so when David writes that, or when the priest recites that, blessed is he who considers the helpless, the Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. We can understand that almost like a beatitude. It's a promise of something that God does for his people. And God's people are merciful. Now listen, we don't live by the law, so when I say that and you deeply feel convicted because you go, man, I really like mercy, I would say to you, yeah, so do I. But we're saved by the mercy of Christ. He truly was the merciful one who has satisfied the law on our behalf. But at the same time, we don't slump back in our chair and disregard being merciful people. We are filled with mercy toward others, knowing that God has shown us mercy. This, this describes who we are. And it describes really who we are becoming. Because one day, right, we will be people that are absolutely filled with mercy. But these are the desires, these are the things that are in our heart that we want to be. We want to see the poor and be able to meet their need fully and entirely. We want to consider the helpless fully. And not be concerned with, well, 50 or 100. No, that, you be like, what do you mean? I don't, I don't understand 50 or 50 or 100 or what? What is it that they need? Oh, I can do that. I got that. You know, that's who we want to be. 
And that's who we need to pray to be. That's who our Lord was. And so this is something that we pursue in our life. Not for recognition, but to honor our Heavenly Father as an expression of worship, right? So once the Spirit gets a hold of the church, go to the right to Acts chapter 4. All right, I'm, I'm going to stop monologuing and talking. Matt, will you read Acts 4, 32 through 35? Okay, that was the time that the church was giving birth and the Spirit was working 110% in their lives and how was it that they responded? Well, there wasn't any needy people. Everybody was like, you know, my stuff is not my stuff. Let's just take away the mine. I got some stuff. And if you need some stuff, I got some stuff. And that's how they responded. This is how the Spirit so worked in them that they responded in such a way. Okay? So this definitely... It's what the Spirit is doing to reflect the character of God upon the church when she was given birth. It wanted to glorify God to the utmost, and so there was not a needy person among them. Of course, I preach this, you know, I realize this is a heavy thing, but I preach this with great comfort because every need I've ever requested from you has been met fully, fully. But at the same time, let's don't rest on past success. Let's strive further and harder and longer to continue to be successful in obeying the word of the Lord, right? This is what it looks like when the Spirit gets hold of you. Not speaking in tongues in some crazy language that you don't understand. But it's opening up your stuff in order that needs of others might be met. Okay? Romans, go to the next... Romans chapter 15, somebody read verse 26 for me. Cody? 1526. You understand the context of this. Those Jews in Jerusalem who had turned to faith in Christ lost it all. Lost their families, lost their businesses, lost their possessions. They were being persecuted for their faith. And other churches from other regions rose up and gave generously to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. They were like, our brothers and sisters are suffering. We're going to meet their needs. And I bring this up because it's not just a personal thing. Acting in this way is an activity of the entire church. We act as a whole. 
And if we ever get a burden within our heart that there's something that we need to do as a body, that needs to be presented to me and the elders so we can respond faithfully as a whole, as a body. And if you ever think that we're not responding adequately or sufficiently enough, we need to have that conversation as a body because a spirit-filled church meets needs, period, among saints. And we do a good job through the Titus Committee in the community but there are times, and, th and these people were separated by many, many, many miles. They didn't care. They'd never met them. They just knew that they were followers of Christ. And they were like, yeah, we'll take care of their needs. That's what the church should be doing, right? Go with me to Galatians 2. This one's a little tougher. Uh, how's it go? Keep running past it. Chapter 2. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Paul is going up to Jerusalem to share the gospel that he has received from the Lord. And they're going to judge that gospel. But after they determine whether or not this is the gospel from the Apostle Paul, they put one requirement, just one, okay? So let me start in chapter 2, verse 1. After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up of the gospel, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who are of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain, that they wouldn't receive it. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Paul was preaching grace alone through faith alone, nothing else, right? But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us in bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. In other words, Paul says, I preached the gospel. Some people added, oh, you got to be circumcised too. And Paul was like, oh, no. And he said, so the true brethren received our message that, no, there is no work. It's grace alone, faith alone, right? Verse 6, but from those who are of high reputation, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who are of reputation contributed nothing to me. They didn't add to my gospel. Rather, on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles or the uncircumcised, just like Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the Jews or the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the Jews effectually worked for me to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They, they agreed with my gospel so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. The only thing they asked was to remember the poor. The very thing that I was eager to do. That was it. Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He's like, let me present the gospel. Talks about faith alone. There was some Jews there. I said, oh, no, 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 no. We got to do something more than faith. You got to be circumcised. Argument. They come to the conclusion with Peter and John and the rest of the guys that was reputable saying, no, circumcised is not required. Just preach faith to the Gentiles. That's the gospel. Good? We're good. Oh, yeah, Paul, one thing, one thing. Don't forget the poor. Paul's like, never would I do that. 
Isn't that an interesting conversation? I find that absolutely fascinating of all the things they could have said. Oh, Paul, one more thing, and I want you to forget to do this. That was the one thing. Okay. Two more passages. Go with me to the book of James. Jeremy, read James 2, 14 through 17, please. And you're very familiar with this passage, I know. What use is it, my brethren, if anyone says he has faith, but he has not works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and fulfilled, yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So James likens it to a demonstration of saving faith, of genuine faith. He says it's just not possible for you to say you possess something and then you not demonstrate it in the way that you behave. He says, so let me give you an illustration. Let's take the poor, for instance. Someone of faith who is genuine faith could not possibly say, go in peace, be warm and well fed, and not turn around and make sure of their own ability that they are warm and well fed. That's not possible. And that's the one that really pricks our heart second, not first. I'll show you one that's even worse. Second most difficult thing to deal with. It's just not something that we would ever do if we profess to be followers of Christ. How could you do that? James says it's just not possible for you to do that. James would say, I would immediately be concerned about the sincerity of your faith because a Christian wouldn't do that. Last one, go with me to 1 John 3. Johnny, will you read verse 17? 1 John 3, verse 17. Verse 18. John just throws it out there. There is no faith. If you respond in such a way, there simply is, if you cannot respond in love and meet needs, then the love of God does not abide in you. That's one of the, I think that's the hardest passage that we have to wrestle with within our hearts. It's just not possible for you to turn your back on needs that are right in front of you and claim, profess to have the love of God in your heart. It's not. It's not possible. So that's the one that we have to wrestle with the most. Now, of all these things, you know, we went through, you know, it's evidence of the Spirit. It's the command to the church. It's a demonstration of our own faith. It honors the Lord. Uh, of all those things that goes through, let me give you the number one reason why we consider the helpless. And the number one reason we do that is because that is a demonstration of the gospel itself. Takes you back to Romans 5. While we were still yet helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
when you give to the poor, it is, or when you consider rather, I don't want to just say give to the poor, when you consider the needs of the helpless, you understand your, I don't want to say you're preaching the gospel because I can't say, I can't stand it when people say preach the gospel and sometimes use words. That's just foolish. If you preach the gospel, you use words. But when you consider the helpless, you are demonstrating the gospel firsthand. You are acting it out. Because I take you back to where we began. We were helpless in our sin. And it is God who fully met our need. You think about that. How was it that He met our needs while we were in sin? Did He just kind of, you know, tighten up our bootstraps and give a little strength to our legs so we could walk down the altar and receive Christ? Did He give us just enough energy to kind of push us over the side? No, He did everything for us in bringing us to salvation. He provided the sacrifice. He shed the blood. He paid the price. He adopted us into the family of God. He did everything so He saw us in our helpless state and He fully met our need. And when we have that opportunity, we're demonstrating what's only been done to us. We're not even doing more. You can never do more than what's been done for you. It's not possible. So we should never think, you know, how much in any respect, because that was not God's way of thinking at all. God considered us and He fully met our need. And every time we do that, we're just saying, I'm only doing what's been done for me. Let me ask you something. You know, if I give Rob a hundred bucks, I just feel impressed upon the Lord to give him a hundred bucks. And then he finds out on the way home, Tyler needs a hundred bucks. He turns around and goes, here, man. Was there any way Rob would take any credit for that? <laughs> Cody says yes. I forgot Cody was here. Anybody else? Is there any way? You'd be like, no. Rob would say, no, no, no. Because Tyler would be like, dude, thank you, thank you. And Rob would be like, no, 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 dude, it's not even mine. Somebody gave me this like five minutes ago. Here. I know why it was given to me. Why don't we strain to meet the needs of others? Are you really giving something that's yours? No, we're just passing it along. We're just being a conduit of what we've already received. Why in the world can't I meet your need? Because he has met all my needs. You see, we need to reconsider the helpless. We're really not doing anything. We're really not doing anything that we should be rewarded for, even though he rewards us. We're simply just letting it pass through what's been done for us. I'm just meeting needs. You don't have to pat me on the back, brother. In effect, it did not come from me. So let me take you back to Psalm. Psalm 41. Roll back there. Now, I don't want to undo everything that I just did. But considering the helpless is not the main point of this psalm. The main point of this psalm is what's going on in David's heart. Asking the Lord, making requests of the Lord that the Lord heal him. And the Lord is gracious and does that very thing. What we do with that is certainly 
let me, let me paint a contrast for you. Look down in verse 9. Of course, you, you recognize verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, what is that? Where does that come from? Where do we see that in the New Testament? Judas. That's the very thing Judas does. You can wrestle all day on how in the world David wrote that down and who in the world he was talking about. But nonetheless, in the Spirit, David penned the words of the very thing that would happen to our Savior later. But here's the contrast. Who did David sin against in verse 4? God. Who did David help in verse 9? Who ate my bread, his friend? Who is there in David's time of need? His friend whom he had helped or his God in whom he insulted and rebelled against? I think that strikes a little closer to what this psalm is about. God is the gracious one. And we think we do well sometimes when we turn to our friends. No. Sometimes they'll eat your bread and curse you on your deathbed. No, our trust is in God and God alone. And that's why twice he makes the request, God, you be gracious to me. God, I need you and you alone. Okay? All right, I'll stop there. Any questions or anything?